Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Saturday, April the 29th, 2023, uh, the weekend for most of us, although, of course, if you're a parent uh, of children, there are no weekends. No need me telling any parent that. Uh, we've done many shows uh, over the last couple of years about parenting. Uh, we seem to be obsessed as a culture with parenting. We did one with the best-selling writer Emily Oster, uh, who praised the idea of parenting with data. We've done shows probably as a response to o uh, Oster on the roots of overparenting of people like perhaps Oster and her literature. Did a show a few weeks ago with Beth Berendt on uh, how to be a parent during a divorce. We seem obsessed with uh, becoming better parents. Uh, we did one uh, last year, an interesting conversation about how parents' jobs shapes children's well-beings, meaning, of course, that even uh, what we do as professions reflects us as parents. We, we seem as if we want to become better and better parents, although as a parent myself, it's certainly the hardest job uh, and one that uh, is ultimately rewarding, but very difficult and very punishing as well. What about looking at things, however, the other way, not so much as a parent, but as a child? Uh, we've done fewer shows on this. We've got one coming up next month with Terry McDonnell, who has a, a new book out, Irma, uh, about his remarkable mother. Uh, Terry McDonnell is a legendary figure in, in the literary world and, in fact, the co-founder of LitHub. And today we're not doing mothers but fathers with Charles Foran, who um, is a very distinguished Canadian man of letters, an author, journalist, educator, and he has a new book out, just out, called Just Once No More, a book about his father. And he's joining us from just outside uh, Toronto. Charlie, welcome. Good morning. Uh, tell me a little bit about your father. Unfortunately, of course, uh, he is no longer with us. My father, Dave Foran, had a long life. He died 85. So I was there for it. Uh, in my own late middle age, when I uh, watched and, and to some extent uh, responded to his illness and decline, uh, and which is, I suppose, the spine, uh, Andrew, of the book. My dad was a, 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 a Canadian male of his generation, stoic, quiet, um, very, very uh, uncomfortable with emotions, his own or other people's. Uh, tough, uh, more naturally suited to life in in the bush, in, uh, which is where he began his career. But he ended up a suburban dad and a suburban executive in Toronto. Charlie, do you have kids yourself? I do, Thir age thirty-one and twenty-nine, so they qualify as full-flown adults at the moment. Yes. Two daughters, two daughters. Uh, I, I want to talk about your father because that's what the book's about. But I, uh, I, I want you to explain to me or help explain to me why 
our generation, yours and my generation, why we're so obsessed with parenting or at least discussing parenting, where it seems as if our parents' generation, they parented, but they didn't talk about it very much. It's true. They did not. Uh, I think just a little older than us, and I was born in 1960, just a little before I came of age as a parent, the phenomena of books about parenting, about advice about parenting, uh, really, really uh, became front and center of mainstream North American culture. I'll say North American, and I'm not as confident about European. So everybody all of a sudden was full of, of recommendations, advice, uh, scoldings, uh, do's, don'ts. I remember with our girls, uh, I followed a, 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 a developmental series that was your child at five, your child at six, your child at seven. It's a series of small books that would remind you of where your kid was at developmentally as an aid to parenting. So I believe, the like many other things, parenting became more and more, uh, not in the academy, but more and more um, studied. But did it reflect, or does it reflect, Charlie, and you and I were actually born in, in the same year, 1960, does it reflect our, our fundamental lack of confidence? <laughs> Guys like your father and my parents, they didn't need manuals. They didn't need to watch TV shows or read magazines about how to be a good parent. Some of them were, some weren't. But what is it about our generation that's so obsessed with learning how to parent? Uh, Andrew, that's a really fair question. I think I've frozen on the screen, but uh, you can hear me fine. I can hear you good. Continue, yeah. Charlie. It's the oh, Canadian technology. Yes, it is. And uh, we, that's a whole subject for another day. Um, I, I, of course, there were great parents of our parents' generation, and there were crappy parents of our generation, Andrew. It doesn't align. What, what I would say is that, uh, as you know, in many societies, they were reluctant even to name their children until they reached ages four, five, six. They would often use just numbers, like in China and some South American cultures. In other words, the infant mortality rate was so high. You know, they, they didn't practice attachment in the same way. They were, they were, life was a good deal more fragile. You know, my, my, my wife's mother spoke a lot when she was alive about polio, the polio epidemics of the 40s and 50s. So, in other words, I think there was a lot more contingency. Baby boomers, you and I, late baby boomers, had, have and have had such a certainty about that life was going to be only good and only happy. And, and long as well. Touch and long. Wood. And long. And isn't that playing out in our, with our healthcare systems and our retirement ages and all that sort of thing? So, when it came to parenting, I think our parents were just more humble and a little more... Uh, chastened shouldn't and, we be careful though charlie about over nostalgizing i'm not sure if there's such a word you're a poet you can correct me uh about our parents given that we seem to be caught between generations yours and my generation uh the, this idea of our parents being and maybe this is a reflection of your father or your attitude to your father that life was simpler. They just, this was the yes. greatest generation. They went on and lived it, didn't do a lot of thinking, but they behaved decently. 
I think, it, of course, that's nostalgic. And of course, that uh, doesn't apply across the board. And uh, it is perhaps um, easier to say that it was easier when there wasn't as much information, when there wasn't as much expectation. Uh, so no, I, 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 I take your point. I do think, though, that if you, you know, watch your share of American films from the 40s, 50s, 60s, and read your share of novels, you will come upon a great deal of derelict parenting. Um, and it was maybe, uh, Andrew, a little more raw. It was about alcohol. It was about ignorance. It was about absence. Uh, so uh, humans, my goodness, are, we are studies in imperfection. Fill in, fill in the background then. How, did you have brothers and sisters? And where did you grow up with your father and, and, and presumably mother as well? Grew up in the suburbs of Toronto. I have a brother and I have a sister. We were a fairly classic post-war nuclear family. Bought a small bungalow in a brand new suburb north of the city. Was raised there. My, as I said earlier, my father, though his formative years were spent as a claim staker in the bush in northern Ontario and northern Canada. He wound up uh, holding down a pretty regular white-collar job. My mother was a homemaker. It had all the all the ticked all the boxes of of the dream, the suburban dream of the period for middle-class people. And then tell me a little bit about your mother too. Uh, as I said, um, we're doing the mother mm. show with Terry McDonald. Maybe you'll write a, a book later about your mom. Maybe I will. Uh, she's still with us. She's 88. She's Franco-Ontarian, Andrew, which means French speaking from Ontario as opposed to Quebec. Uh, she was uh, 13 of 14 children which bespeaks a Catholic childhood. Oh, my God. Yes. And they wound up with a 11, 12 surviving 11 girls. So it was a, a certain kind of sitcom um, uh, in northern, a small logging town in northern Ontario uh, uh, where she was raised and where she met my father. So she, she very much came from that generation we've been describing of where forbearance, simplicity, uh, you know, a, a good a good year of parenting was if all your kids survived. Charlie, we've done a number of shows recently on the crisis of boys and men in our culture. Uh, it's becoming an increasingly central and in some ways controversial subject for some feminists or some women. It's not really an issue or they think that men are making this stuff up for others. Uh, it's um, it's. Uh, it's a, it's true. Um, what do you think your book about your father and your reading of your father's generation, what does it tell us about, and I'm not suggesting that you're in crisis as a boy or a man, but the, 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 the cultural dilemma, if you like, of malehood in the 2020s. I think it's real, the, the, the crisis. I think that uh, for very good reasons, broadly speaking, society has shifted its attention toward the inner lives and the well-being of other uh, groups in society, be that you know the broad gen gender category of female or uh, uh, underserved or minority communities. And so that the, the the, the, the male, the heteronormative male, 
has not only been maybe overlooked, and as you know, there are lots of lots of evidence that our education system disfavors boys, but also has been vilified to some extent. Been told to take on the burden of uh, generations of historic dominance and wrongs committed by men. It is confusing to say the least, and it plays itself out in all kinds of uh, behaviors that are problematic from you know, excessive video gaming to incel violence, Andrew, to just more conventional things like depression and underperformance in school and late entry into adulthood and all that sort of stuff. Did My you, book, sorry, sorry, just, go just I, I would say as a, as a 62-year-old uh, writing about a, a relationship with an 80-something-year-old male, I do feel like I'm in a slightly different terrain than I think I didn't experience any uh, insecurity. I was on top, if you will, as growing up. Didn't was never told I wasn't uh, on top of the heap uh, as by definition, by default, as just being a, a, a white cisgendered male. But um, so my I don't think my book is in that space, but it is in another space emotionally around men's writing, perhaps, which we can talk about. What kind of conversations did you used to have with your father? Was he able to realize any kind of intimacy? Or was the intimacy implied? I track it in the early chapters of the book uh, and all taking place in the hospital while he's hospitalized because he spent almost a year of his final three years in hospital. He attempted to connect with me several times and I certainly was hungry to connect with him in that slightly sweaty, unpleasant way that you might get when you know that the clock is ticking and then time is running out and you want to find out things. You want to sort things out because he had never talked about, he came from a very dysfunctional family, great deal of uh, upset and unhappiness. And we'd had almost no uh, connection with our grandparents on either side of the family for different reasons. So I, I pushed very hard in his, when he was in hospital with him to share. And he was trying with me in his own way but he literally didn't have the language and we didn't together have the shared vocabulary. You can't kind of drop yourself into those, into that mode of, it, of conversation or exchange after 50 years of non-discussion, if you will. Uh, right. You, uh, you're, you're the author of many books, uh, many well-received books, including one about yourself, the story of my life, uh, about mm -hmm. your 10-year-old being. Was your father intimidated by your literary success and your ability with words? Well, that's a, a fair question. I don't, there's something else we didn't discuss, I suppose. Uh, I would say this. Uh, he didn't ask about my work. Um, he, we never discussed my books or anything I was writing, even if he was sort of tangentially Part of he must that. have must have been proud of you. He must have congratulated you on your success, didn't he? All the time. He was uh, tickled pink, especially tickled pink when I was given a an, a an award called the Order of Canada, which is our version of a knighthood, I guess you call it. Um, and so I should be call you calling you Sir Charles. I uh, definitely not. Uh, I think, in fact, one of the reasons Canada established this meritorious uh, uh, award or recognition was because we were still uh, awarding knighthoods via England into the 1960s. So we decided we better 
drop yeah, that. It's a much, much of their it's own a, thing. A much, a much, uh, as always in Canada, a much more civilized uh, solution. So, yes. so back to your father. Um, yes. You said he had a great deal of pride, especially when you won this big award. But was he able to articulate that? How did he put it into words? Probably something as simple as I'm proud of you, maybe a, you know, a faux punch on the arm. Um, he, he, what I was trying to explore a little in the book was my slow coming to understand that he himself had had almost no parenting. And if you don't have parenting, unless you're intuitively very gifted at it, you probably are going to replicate the, um, the dysfunction or simply bow out. My mother was a, a very natural, empathetic, lovely parent, warm, engaged. My father, I think, was just enormously relieved that she was there so he didn't have to try and muster uh, emotional complexities he didn't feel or know how to process if he did feel them more. So, so these are almost exaggerated cultural and gendered roles. A little bit, a little bit. You know, the, uh, and, and, and heaven forbid I've, I've painted too broad, a, 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 used too broad a, a, a brush here, <clears throat> but it was how it played out inside our house. My mother was nurturing. She was, uh, as I say, warm. My father was distant. He was shy. <clears throat> he did not have any language. Uh, and I don't think he, uh, he didn't know, know to do anything about it. That's, that's if something. You can get in, into his head, Charlie. Mm -hmm. do, do you think he, he was unhappy about that? Do you think he would like to have figured out a language, invented a way of speaking and acting that created more intimacy with you? Uh, no doubt. <clears throat> Insofar as uh, I don't think human beings, uh, if, if asked directly, they don't seek distance from loved ones, those closest to them, even though those distances are often there. I don't think, though, I think he was, saw the glass as being half full. He saw that by comparison with what he had experienced as a kid, this was pretty good. He had a house. He had a wife. He had three kids. <clears throat> everybody was well. Everybody was safe. He was the breadwinner. He, so he would go off and do his thing, and then he would come home. And in the evenings, he would often disappear shortly after saying hello to us and make his crafts for another four or five hours. So he, there was no sense that he could uh, uh, integrate himself, if you will, into our developmental uh, journey. To use to go back to the, me saying that I was, you know, reading these books about your kid at age five, your kid at age six. That was so far from my father's uh, uh, purview. But he was just relieved as heck that everything seemed okay. And he was pulling it off. He was pulling off the, the middle-class uh, lifestyle. And he was being a good dad. And he, he was, Andrew, in those senses. And I don't want to say that I was you know, greedy and needy of more when I was a boy. Uh, I didn't experience childhood that way. It was only much later in life that I uh, began to reflect on... Uh, why he was the way he was. And that's natural, right? Because he was leaving the earth and time was passing.
clock is ticking. But even when you were younger, he wasn't able to really share your literary success. He certainly wasn't a man of letters, of words, of books. Did you miss not having a father who could share that? I didn't think about it. One of the things I lay out in Just Once No More, the book, is, is, is I begin with a list at the, in the very first chapter of 10 reasons why uh, people get sad when they get older. And, and then I revisit the list at the end of the book and, uh, and, and evolve it quite a bit into what I actually was concerned with while I was writing. And one of the things I highlight in that initial list, in the second chapter, excuse me, is that you, um, you come to a point in your life, it doesn't sound like you're quite there yourself, Andrew, where, where you've sort of completed your tasks. You've, you've made that family. You've, you've well, why, that... The, why haven't I reached that? And you have. Well, I, I'm assuming your kids are younger than mine. I don't know why. Am I wrong? Yeah, but not that much younger. Your kids are in their early 30s, you say? Yes, yes. Mine are in their mid to early 20s. All right. Well, then maybe you're feeling some of this where it like it's not a bad thing. It's a, it's if anything, a bit of happy news, you know, biologically or ontologically where you you've done your thing. You've you as created. a parent, that is. And, and then, of course, be- everything gets reversed and you become the child and they start looking after you in it, it, that can happen. And that's and that's a that's a lovely circle if to 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 fill in. No, additionally, though, it's not just as a parent. Uh, I think many, as you know, many men in particular, their careers kind of peak, plateau, late 40s, early 50s. They don't go higher. Um, maybe their sense of themselves is sexually virile, as sporty, as having, you know, uh, all these things just meet up against the reality that you are aging. And maybe to the extent that the human animal has a, a small list of, of reasons to be, yours are complete. So what do you, how do you then find a way to live, live meaningfully, live happily, live uh, deeply beyond that obvious arc? A simple way, at least, especially uh, in some cultures is to, you know, go get a, a second wife and start over. But that certainly isn't the, the, the norm even now. Um, Charlie, so, yeah. is it ironic that we want to grow up as, as sons, we want to become adults, we want to emulate or rival or perhaps even improve on our fathers. But that can really only happen when they die. <laughs> it's often been said, that's, that's the case. I, I don't think it was true for me. I really don't. And that maybe go, goes back to when you asked, you know, was, was I awaiting his approval of my work, say, as a younger writer? As a younger man, the answer was no. I don't think I was. I had, uh, even though I didn't, couldn't put it into words. And I say in the first chapter that it, it took me forty years to understand that what I saw as anger in my father was actual sort of hunger for love. It took me forty years to see that, or insecurity about being loved. I should say better. So I, but I must have intuited something of that when I was younger because I didn't ask that of him. Curiously, I only asked it of him at the very end when I realized that there were all these broken narratives that were his narratives about his parents, his family. But of course, as you know, they also are your narratives as the next generation. And I 
just didn't want to leave these things on the floor all messed up like they had been for all my life. So I pushed at him to talk finally uh, in the 11th hour, 11th and a half hour. And that was tough. And I, uh, I, I brought uh, as much shame upon myself there as anything else because it wasn't nice. As, uh, as a very private man, your father, do you think he would have been comfortable with this book? Hmm. Yes. Yes. For the reasons you, you know, you've, you've mentioned a couple of times that you didn't seem to have, you know, words. And we've been talking about whether, how much that generation was tongue tied, uh, at least when it came to emotional emotions and psychological states. So I, I think my dad, after some reflection, would have said, great, there it is, finally, in words, what happened. You, you of course, try, as, as we all do, if we write about our parents, try to write fairly. But in our confessional culture, where all too often people are blaming others, do you think there's a tendency to account for our own weaknesses, frailties, unhappiness by blaming our parents? Is there ever? Yes. 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 The, I won't even quote, quote Philip Larkin to you because um, you know it so well. Everyone knows it so well, the quote. Well, um, quote it. Not everyone. Uh, all right. Parents, I wish everyone did, Charlie. Parents, they fuck you up. They don't mean to, but they do. That's a paraphrase. Uh I, I think, and, and the nice thing about the Larkin quote is that he was the first generation to be able to think of being fucked up, whereas previous generations it never would have occurred to them. There you have it, and maybe that, maybe that's the, uh, maybe that's the path we're on. Like it, it, each generation is, uh, first he gets to be fucked up, then now we get to be whiny or something, and then the next, the younger generations get to be uh, well. To pick and choose, maybe. Maybe that's the next step. Well, emotionally, my, my sense is, and you have daughters rather than sons, but, but broadly, this generation we brought up seems to be emotionally rather frail, fragile, easily to, uh, easy to offend. Uh, a, a, a generation of therapy, but maybe I'm being unfair. Uh, it's observable, certainly, that the, the, the frailty. Uh, the frailty is often ascribed not necessarily to you know, over overprivileged childhoods or over attentive or but more to external factors uh, such as, you know, climate emergency and and uh, COVID of late. Um, I do we think exaggerate. I mean, uh, Charlie, yeah. and we'll get yeah. to COVID in a minute. We exaggerate all the dramas, whether it's COVID or climate emergency. A man like your father, Dave Foran, he was a man of few words. He lived through Hardship, yes. uh, depression, yes. uh, economic catastrophe, the war. So this idea that somehow our generation, or at least our kids' generation, is living through hard times, I think is a complete and utter uh, invention. And if anything, I think things are still easier these days than they were, certainly during the time when your father was growing up. By every objective measure, life has never been easier for young people. And for people like us, uh, we are we are getting better and better at, at least in the West, in in de 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 democracies, and we're getting better and better at creating uh, dream states for middle class people. There are lots of people below who fall through. I think though, what the difference might be, and this is a new thought, but you you sort of triggered it, is that our parents, my father, didn't live through 
you know, we talk about the 24 hour news cycle. I think what is now is the 24 hour self reflection, self therapy, uh, pop culture cycle. You can't get away from it. Young people are being told constantly, constantly to think this, to be frail, that they are frail, that this is happening to them. I believe that uh, our parents just sort of got on with things because they didn't have this bombardment. And I'm not just talking about technology, although that's a huge thing. Um, I'm, uh, I am talking broadly about the, these, the self-consciousness, the acute, you know, uh, over, overwhelming self-consciousness with which we conduct our lives now. Um, yeah, in, in the public space. Uh, yes. I mean, I, I, God knows what your dad, Dave Foran, would have thought of Instagram or Facebook or Twitter. Yes, yes. He would have been, it would have been so bad. These public <laughs> confessionals where we show yes. off or either we show off our happiness and beauty or we show off our misery or our anger. Mm -hmm. Yes, they are exactly that. Um, a curiosity for me, of, as, and I'm not a social media person, has always been the way we assess uh, my understanding of a tweet or a post, most of them, is that they, they are like a screed by a guy on a bar stool next to you. And the, the, the stature to which we grant these random comments from strangers, we put them on our TV screens, we, we decide they have sort of editorial weight, that they are vox populi, that they represent something other than just the, the comments, the wild random perhaps drunken, perhaps pharmaceutically altered comments of someone sitting next to you on a bar. I don't know how that happened, Andrew, but here we are. Charlie, you may take this as a compliment, you may not, but my sense from talking to you and, and reading about your book and dipping in and out of the book is you're a lot more like Dave Foran than perhaps you present. Yes, I think I, I, I would take it as a compliment, of course. You I mean, he was a, a man of few words. You may not be a man of few words, but you're a man of considered words. I, I hope. As, uh, that's, as a writer, uh, as a broadcaster, yes. as a commentator, as you say, you're not on social media. You don't throw around words thoughtlessly. I never would. I, I do value them. And uh, a bad thought can do all sorts of damage. Uh, passe uh, Donald Trump. Uh, yeah, uh, let's not mention Trump. Okay. What, what, yeah, I'm not even going to... Let's easy. not go there. It's too, too easy. And it's too easy, excuse me, but... Yeah, and it confirms what, everything that we already think. Um, yes. so, sorry, go on. So No, I was just going to say that, the, the, the again, uh, the, you know, one of the big conversations, and I'm sure you've talked about over the years on your show, is that has been the idea that curation say, you know, represented formerly by old legacy media things like newspapers, that curating what you should know about each day is somehow an imposition upon your freedom and your individuality, as opposed to a helpful way of making sense of the, of the chaos and cacophony out there. Uh, and that's the same is true of opinion. I like, I'm very interested in opinion. I read opinion columns all the time, but I really would prefer to read the opinions of someone who has crafted those thoughts. Right, and in a way, your book, talking about curation, Charlie, it's an attempt to curate both your own life and your, your father's life. What did you learn about both yourself and your father from writing this book? How did you end the book 
more knowledgeable or perhaps more confused about your relationship with your father and about him, Dave Foran? Uh, Andrew, uh, the book is a response to my father's illness and death, for sure. He is, a, he is the first half of it in particular is framed by uh, his final years. It is classified as a memoir, but only because if, if Marcus Aurelius or Seneca was public, were publishing books today, they would be called memoirs. It is a book of ultimately a, a meditation on aging, on frailty, on fathers and sons, but also on the self, the phenomenology of the self, on the emotional state of self deconstruction. How do you, how do you, how do you honestly confront the person you are at different stages of your life, and particularly as a, as we've been discussing, as you are in that back quarter, say, of your lifespan. The book is about many, many things. Uh, so what I learned about my father uh, was perhaps not at the top of my sort of ambitions for the book, believe it or not. Um, it really is a book that is thinking about, uh, how to put it, is thinking about how to age with dignity, grace, humility, and joy. And how do we do that, Charlie? We've had actually some shows on that. And some, mm. some very interesting shows. What, what, what wisdom did you learn both from the writing of the book and from the example of your father and perhaps your own life? I think uh, this is a very personal take. I think that the less, less is more when it comes to yourself, your ego. You are going to give things up. You are going to lose things. Uh, we haven't talked about, and I'm very happy to not talk about too much, but the book also dovetails into my own health challenges. With, and those challenges actually have gotten, uh, took, went to another level after the book was completed. And this was connected also with COVID? Not precisely. It was connected with coronary disease. And in my case, uh, a bypass operation 11 weeks ago, uh, which, and I explore my own growing fragility in the book, but this, not that, that that's happened since. So, but what I, just to answer your question as simply as I can, I, I suspect that the key or a key is to step away from yourself, those things that not you, that make you feel irritable, shitty, angry, step away from them as much as you can and just be in this beautiful, glorious, ecstatic world as much as you can, because it is always here and you won't be always here. So don't wait any longer. That's what I think I learned. I don't know if that's wisdom, but it's certainly my own uh, takeaway from having gone through this. 